0: This is an ABC podcast.
1: This is the WA Country Hour with Belinda Varischetti on ABC Radio WA.
2: Good afternoon, great to have you along today. Now given all the uncertainties surrounding the live sheep trade, the future of the trade, just after half past 12 today, after checking in with news headlines and a look at the weather around Western Australia, you're going to find out if sheep farmers are still spending up big on decent rams. And, well, it's a bit of a mixed bag, really. Some are, some aren't. We'll get all the details after half past 12 today. Also, the Federal Agriculture Minister, Murray Watt, says the government is throwing everything at resolving issues between Australia's live cattle export trade with Indonesia. And you'll hear from the Federal Agriculture Minister shortly here on the Country Hour. It is six past 12 on the ABC right across Western Australia and on the ABC Listen app. Today, starting in the Pilbara, where a quarantine area has been declared for the Burrup Peninsula to eradicate the exotic pest, the red dwarf honeybee. Now, Deephead says the bee is a threat to the environment, the honey industry and the agricultural sector, but it's nowhere near as devastating as the deadly Varroa mite that's been detected on the east coast of Australia in New South Wales. Sonia Broughton is Deep Chief Plant Biosecurity Officer. Sonia, how serious is this pest?
3: So it's exotic to Australia. It's a vector for for quite a few different exotic bee pests um, in terms of viruses, for example. It's native to South Asia and parts of Southeast Asia and it's spread to the Middle East and Africa it will also compete with our European honeybee.
2: And how is it related to the varroa mite that's been in the news and you know has been detected, well, over a year now in the eastern states in New South Wales?
3: So it's not actually related to the um, varroa mite um, outbreak in New South Wales. So it does have an exotic brood mite called ewe varroa sinhai, and it's a type of mite but it's not the same as varroa, it's not as devastating as Varroa is and we also don't think that it would probably cross from the Asian honey or the sorry the red dwarf honeybee onto the European honeybee so it's, it's not quite the same.
2: And how did it get here?
3: So it probably came in on a ship, we've had previous detections of it, I guess the, the, it's a quite a, a bee that if it gets disturbed it tends to sort of take off and, and produce a new colony. So um, that's what's been happening in the Burk Peninsula. So it's probably come off a ship. Um, It might have had a nest somewhere on the ship. Um, We've also seen them on shipping containers on the side of those. And so it probably just absconded. And yes, then it was detected near
2: the port. And how long ago?
3: So it was first detected a few months ago. We were just finding, there was just sort of single bee detections. And so it wasn't confirmed until relatively recently that there were some um, established populations. So first it looked like it was just the odd bee that was there, but it wasn't until quite recently that we've actually now detected 10 colonies.
2: And what are the details then of the quarantine area that's been set up?
3: So what we're, for the Burrup Peninsula um, in the Pilbara, And what we've been asking is that any beekeepers with hives, equipment or those who actually collect swarms on the peninsula are not able to move them out of that quarantine area because we don't want to basically have this pest spreading. We're also asking workers, residents, businesses and visitors to the quarantine area to report observation of unusual bees to the Paddis hotline or to our department. And then also just obviously if people are moving... um, machinery they might you know to have a look to see that there's no bee colonies so these bees are quite distinctive they they're not the same as European bee. they actually build a comb so you can you can see it and I guess what they're doing in the Borough Peninsula is they they might be building in quite a, a site that's hard to get to so we're hoping that it hasn't sort of spread beyond that so all the indicators to date are that it's it's in quite a confined area
2: what does it mean for the local beekeepers?
3: It just means that we're we're basically going out de- and destroying any wild, so any European honeybee wild colonies that are out there. But we're also, obviously, when we find these red dwarf honeybee colonies, we're also destroying them. So in terms of the beekeepers, it's it'll be business as usual for them. We're not going to be destroying their beehives. It's just that we want them um, in particular because they know what the European honeybee looks like as well as these exotic ones. So they would probably be best placed to to determine if there's anything unusual out there.
2: What's the likelihood of it spreading and what impact would it have if if that was the case?
3: So it's incredibly unlikely to spread from the Borough Peninsula. We've got a team out there at the moment. We're just seeking to see if there's any more colonies out there. Um, If it did spread, I guess the only advantage we've got is that it's quite a remote bit of Western Australia. So we would, in terms of spreading down to where there's more bees that are actually being kept commercially, that's very unlikely. So I think that's just one of the advantages we've got is that it's in a remote area and that we can contain and, and destroy it up there.
2: Now, there are concerns from the bee industry that deep herd's focus has been on this detection of the red dwarf honeybee. One beekeeper said that deep herd is stretched beyond capacity and there's not enough capacity for surveillance for the rest of the state to prevent or monitor for the varroa mite, the real nasty one that's been found on the eastern states. Is that an accurate assessment?
3: No, I don't think so. So while we are concentrating some of our resources, so it's not just people with that do the bee surveillance that are going up to the Borough Peninsula. We also do draw on other resources. So we are drawing on um, the Northern Territory to assist as part of a sort of a joint surveillance exercise as well as the federal government. So in terms of keeping up our surveillance for a role, we're still doing that. There's still a lot of public information as well as the commercial beekeepers actually assisting and doing surveys of their own for varroa, as well as we also rely on the public to basically report anything unusual, including for the red dwarf honeybee, although it's very unlikely to be
2: present in the Perth area. So how many staff are just dealing with the red dwarf honeybee, and how many do you have on hand, say, for example, if there was a detection of varroa mite here in WA?
3: Right, well that would be interesting. Um, So what we would do in that case, so we have we basically have four staff um, that are part of our bee surveillance team. So they they do bee surveillance. In addition, there are other um, staff that have been doing some bee surveillance just as a sort of a backup surveillance team, if you like, in case there is a varroa mite detection. And if there was a varroa mite outbreak in Western Australia, um, what we do is we would draw on the commercial beekeepers as well. So we've already had some offers from our local beekeepers to be involved in, in this particular response and that's what we would actually be doing. We'd be looking at commercial beekeepers um, as well as probably hobbyists to assist with any varroa eradication as well as staff within Deep that sort of have that
2: experience. So you're confident there'd be enough resources within Deep Herd to prevent or tackle an outbreak of varroa mite while you, while you were yes. sort of also dealing with what you've got on hand now with the red dwarf honeybee?
3: Yes, I'm, I'm pretty confident that we would. Um, the other thing that we do, we would do as well is um, we can draw in other jurisdictions if needed. So, for example, in New South Wales, we have had our staff go over to assist with their varroa outbreak and that's what we do. We, we can do if in, in the event that there's, you know, if there was a varroa outbreak. And we actually have two staff at the moment over in New Zealand doing some, I guess, some training to identify varroa as well as sort of how, how it can be eradicated and managed.
2: Yeah, because this is the the deadly uh, bee pest, the Varroa mite, that we're talking about. We've already seen what millions of bees euthanised and hives put under movement restrictions in the eastern states, particularly in New South Wales. And there have been a series of meetings last week and more meetings this week, and some of those I understand you've been involved with. So what is the plan at this stage with the Varroa mite? Is it still to continue... With eradication, or are you now looking at a management plan?
3: No, um, we're we're still very much wanting to eradicate varroa because, we basically, you know, the the impact of it on on beekeepers would be immense, as well as all the other industries that rely on pollination services. So, at this stage, very much still supporting eradication.
2: And how confident are you that we can keep it out of Western Australia?
3: Incredibly confident, of course, because we've got great quarantine. I don't know if you've ever had to or tried to bring honey into the state, but we basically do not allow that. We also have restrictions on the movement of any um, bees into Western Australia as well as equipment. I mean, some people might try to do the wrong thing, so we're also very much on the lookout for anything that tries to come through the mail or, um, I guess, through our borders where they're not declaring that they have bees or, or bee products.
2: I guess it's in Western Australia's interest for the eastern states to keep up with the eradication plan, because as soon as it goes to management plan, doesn't that increase the risk of varroa mite getting into Western Australia?
3: Um, yes, it does, but I think um, in terms of if they if it had to go to management, I think we probably would have 10 or more years, um, because it, just in terms of the spread of varroa, we have that desert that's in between us and the rest of Australia, So, as well as our quarantine um, as they're coming into the state. So we're quite confident that if that was to co- to occur, that it would take quite a while for it to spread into Western Australia.
2: Sonia, good to talk to you. Thank you. No problem. Thank you. Sonia Broughton is the Department of Primary Industry Regional Development's Chief Plant Biosecurity Officer. Just going through the details of the detection of the red dwarf honeybee, uh, 10 sites have been located, all in the Pilbara, all in the Burrup, peninsula at this stage anyway, and the plan is to eradicate the exotic pest. What do you make of the plan? Let me know on the text, 0448 This on the text, just saying, uh, can the following questions be asked when interviewing Dr. Sonia Broughton about the apius floria today? That is the technical name, I'm assuming, for the red dwarf honeybee. Have all registered beekeepers been made directly aware of the unfolding situation regarding this invasive pest? Uh, The answer to that is yes. The industry was notified back in June when it was first discovered. And have all registered beekeepers been instructed on the quarantine area and the requirements? And again, yes, an industry update went out to the whole industry this morning. And I think the other questions have been answered. What is DPIRD doing about stopping Varroa mite entering WA? How much money has been committed? And can you explain how this might be adequate? We didn't get a dollar sense from Sonia, but a bit of an idea of the plan, if that was to occur and what's going on right now. And what's being done by DPIRD to inform beekeepers about any efforts regarding Varroa destructor. I thank you for the text. If you would like to be part of the conversation, the text is zero double four eight nine double two six zero four. 17 past
4: 12. You're with Belinda Varischetti on the Country Hour on ABC Local Radio WA.
2: The Federal Agriculture Minister, Murray Watt, says the government is throwing everything at resolving issues between Australia's live cattle export trade with Indonesia. Over the weekend, some new export restrictions were slapped on two Western Australian cattle yards by Indonesia which practically means there will not be any exports of live cattle from WA to Indonesia until this is all sorted out. Now, you know there has been ongoing tension between Australian livestock producers and the Indonesian government since July when its authorities claimed to detect lumpy skin disease in 13 exported Australian cattle. Now, four Australian facilities are still suspended from exporting cattle to Indonesia, The three new facilities caught up in this saga, including two in Broome, have not been suspended, but the testing now required to export cattle from these new facilities to Indonesia makes it cost prohibitive. Murray Watt says a lot of work is going on to get the trade back to business as usual.
5: Obviously the live cattle export trade is a really important industry for our country but particularly for Northern Australia, Northern WA, the Northern Territory, North Queensland, uh, all up it's worth about $900 million a year. So as a government we're of course concerned about some of the developments uh, regarding the trade to Indonesia and we're throwing everything at resolving this as quickly as we possibly can. Uh, We are approaching this in a calm and considered manner. Indonesia is a valued trading partner and valued neighbour, and we want to make sure things stay that way. Um, So our approaches have been designed to make sure that we get the outcome, being uh, the lifting of these issues, uh, while of course preserving that relationship with Indonesia for the future. Um, You'd be aware uh, that a few weeks ago, we were advised by Indonesia that there were four export cattle yards um, that they had concerns about in relation to lumpy skin disease. I'm pleased to say that in the last few days we were able to provide Indonesia with testing results from those four yards that showed that there was no lumpy skin disease in those yards, which is no surprise because Australia is lumpy skin disease free and remains that way. Technical meetings have been set up with the Indonesian biosecurity authorities to occur this week uh, to deal with those four yards, but of course we received a further update over the weekend from Indonesia uh, that they had some issues around three further yards across the Northern Territory and Western Australia. Uh, We as quickly as possible briefed industry about this on Sunday morning. Uh, I have made direct personal contact with the Indonesian agriculture minister. Uh, to make him aware of the situation and to seek his support to resolve this as quickly as possible Uh, because the live cattle export trade is a mutually beneficial trade for both of our countries. It's obviously a big export earner for Australia but it's an important source of food security for Indonesia as well. So we remain hopeful that we can resolve these matters as quickly as possible. Happy to take any questions. So you reached
2: out to your counterpart yesterday, have you heard back yet?
5: Yeah, I'm obviously not going to go into a lot of detail about discussions I have with uh, ministers in overseas governments, but I received a positive response from the Indonesian Agriculture Minister, uh, and I'm confident that we can resolve this uh, through goodwill on both sides. Are you
2: planning to head over to Indonesia to
5: resolve this issue? Uh, I haven't got any plans personally at this stage to do that. Um, the consistent advice to me including from our ambassador in Indonesia has been that this issue will be best resolved at a technical level between biosecurity officials and that's what we've been trying to do But I did feel that with this latest development over the weekend, it was appropriate for me to make direct contact with the Minister. But we're very hopeful that the next uh, meeting of the officials that's going to occur later this week uh, will see some signs of progress. We haven't set deadlines for Indonesia. Obviously, they're a sovereign country that makes their own decisions. But we have certainly said at all times that we'd like to see this issue resolved as quickly. This is an important trade, especially for our north Uh, and we want to get it up and running again as quickly as we can.
3: Just a last question. A lot of the industry is sort of saying to me that it's more than a technical issue, it's a bit more of a diplomatic issue. Do you agree with that?
5: Yeah, I don't see it that way. And again, the advice that we're receiving from our embassy and our diplomatic officials is that this is simply a biosecurity matter. Uh, I'm very pleased uh, that in the discussions that I've been having with industry, that they support keeping this as a technical matter, a biosecurity matter, rather than a political or diplomatic matter. And that's certainly the way we're approaching it. And I'm confident Indonesia is as well.
2: That's the Federal Agriculture Minister, Murray Watt, speaking with the media yesterday. Now, on a positive note for the cattle industry, Malaysia has just lifted its temporary suspension of live cattle and buffalo exports from Australia, and that is effective immediately. You might remember Malaysia uh, imposed those suspensions on the trade of cattle and buffalo shortly after Indonesia put its suspension on those four Facilities, and then I think it was a week or so later, Malaysia followed suit. But as I mentioned, uh, that has changed now. It's back to business as usual with Malaysia. The Department of Agriculture says this follows the provision of technical information to Malaysia, demonstrating Australia's freedom from lumpy skin disease. The department says it's been advised Malaysian authorities will start granting import permits to industry. Immediately. So that is great news about Malaysia, but Malaysia is a very small market compared to Indonesia. Indonesia is a key market for cattle exports from Australia, so the sooner that's sorted, the better. Uh, The WA Premier, Roger Cook, is in Indonesia at the moment and he's confident the issue in this market will be
6: resolved. I've raised the issues with regards to the Lumpy Skin Disease detection with the Australian Ambassador to Indonesia. She's been working herself on the issue, plus we have a team coming over from Australia to work with the Indonesian authorities to resolve the matter. My more, my biggest concern is more around reputational uh, damage as a result of conversations that happened uh, from this. Plus, we want to support our primary industry uh, players in Western Australia. They've got cattle that are ready to come to Indonesia, so we need to resolve these issues as a matter of urgency.
2: Now, the WA Premier was also critical of the federal government for blocking Qatar Airways' bid to increase the number of flights it operates to Australia. Qatar had applied to run an extra 21 flights into Australia each week but was denied. And the federal government says the decision was in the national interest. But Premier Roger Cook says the extra flights should have been approved, especially after the airline kept flights operating out of Perth during the pandemic.
6: They had as few as seven passengers on on their planes, but they continued to fly them during COVID. And obviously that represented an important trade opportunity as well with the cargo that was in their holds. We want to back Qatar Airlines to thank them for them
7: backing WA.
2: Premier Roger Cook, it is 25 past 12 here on The Country Hour on the ABC, right across WA and on the ABC Listener. Shortly, an update from the newsroom and then we'll head off to the Bureau to check conditions right around Western Australia. First, though, there will be a lot of nervous farmers following the class action case that kicked off in Australia's federal court yesterday. At least 800 claimants have filed a class action against multinational chemical company Monsanto which is now owned by Bayer. They're claiming that exposure to the agricultural chemical glyphosate has led to some people developing non-Hodgkin lymphoma. Victorian farmer Andrew Wiedemann is a spokesperson for Grain Producers Australia and he's one farmer watching the case very closely.
8: Well, there's a lot at stake here. You know, we as farmers and globally farmers right around the world have uh, benefited from the use of uh, glyphosate for the last 30 to 40 years, it's been the backbone of the no-till system, particularly here in Australia, where we deal with some extraordinarily harsh environmental conditions that are not experienced in other parts of the world, and and trying to remain successful to grow food for the rest of the world. And so, yes, the cornerstone of a lot of that is is actually glyphosate, which is uh, the predominantly used chemical uh, here in Australia for agricultural farmers and production of agricultural grain.
9: Can you explain why glyphosate is so key to modern grain growing?
8: And We use it to uh, environmentally control weeds, to preserve moisture, and that moisture uh, gives us the opportunity to produce grain and hopefully lots of it. And what I'm really concerned about in this conversation is we have no other replacement for it, and globally what that would mean uh, if it was potentially taken off for shelf for farmers right around the world to use, and particularly here in Australia, we would see a devastating loss in terms of uh, the amount of food that we can produce uh, and the safe and, uh, and reliable chemical that it has been. When it's used according to label, uh, there is no issues that we're aware of. And, and certainly these legal cases that have uh, preceded a lot of uh, this court case in Melbourne has now turned the corner. Uh, we have uh, the facts being heard here. It's an entirely different situation to the courts in America where uh, they're run by juries and there's quite a motive and there's a lot of political nonsense around it. In this case, uh, you know, we're, we're looking at here is the situation where we will have a judge that will be dealing in the facts and the, and the facts that have uh, been demonstrated in the last seven court cases globally has seen it moved uh, in favour of the usage of the chemical.
9: So the last seven court cases around the world have decided in favour of glyphosate?
8: Yes, that's correct. So in terms of its uh, carcinogenic um, potential, uh, that that is correct, uh, Warwick. And so so the facts are, what we realise here, though, is that it is such a safe product for us to be using when, according to the label, using it. And what I'm concerned about is, uh, you know, the misuse potential that people have, have used uh, and now trying to... of other products um, and now potentially um, taking up action like they are.
9: You sound confident that your view on glyphosate will prevail. The, the lawyers for Morris Blackburn certainly sounded confident. That, that their view will prevail. If they succeed, if they do prove through this court case it does cause cancer, and that fact was hidden by the company producing it, what happens to the availability of glyphosate for farmers to use in Australia?
8: Well, look, it would trigger a review uh, process that would be undertaken essentially by the regulators, but there's no international evidence now that suggests that it is a carcinogenic, given that there's been so many other peer-reviewed uh, research papers that have been uh, derived around, obviously since that quite famous court case almost a decade ago now uh, in America, where the court did find in favour of gentlemen that had uh, Hodgkin's disease. So what we're seeing now is on the precedence of that case, the information and, and more uh, evidence and more information has been derived from researchers around the world looking at the usage and the usage patterns but. Again, you know, it's a product that uh, we use here and it's broadly used in Australian agriculture. It's used in a very safe manner when according to the label instructions, it's used. And and we certainly, you know, like any chemical we use, uh, adds value to what we produce here in Australia. And as farmers, you know, if we could farm without chemicals, we probably would, but the reality is we can't and we can't produce enough food to feed a world that is growing in population uh, you know from what i see or, or to make it, a buck <laughs> or to make a buck yeah and look and these lawyers too i mean obviously they're turning their heads towards this they're seeing a, a, an obvious opportunity to make a buck as well and i question you know the ethics that they are using as well in terms of trying to um impose you know making dollars ahead of actual agricultural production of food are you and, confident uh, you, know, you
9: and other farmers are using roundup safely
8: yeah, absolutely I am. And in fact, you know, we were one of the first uh, in Australia to use the uh, systems of uh, non-contact, which is um, something that a lot of farmers now employ quite heavily where um, we're not exposed to any chemicals at all. And and not just uh, glyphosate, we're talking about other products that we use um, in a diluted form. Uh, the way that it's produced is is no issue. And in terms of uh, the usage, I've been using it here on the farm for more than 40 years. So, um, And it's been absolutely a cornerstone for our production here, which is the same and replicated right around Australia for all the other farmers uh, that are listening even today who will be going, you know, this is all a bit crazy because we're using um, other products which we have to be, um, you know, more stringent with in terms of its usage. And, uh, again, you know, we're all licensed operators out here, chair of the National Working Party for Pesticide Application. We're continually looking at ways to improve the way that we apply and use and inform... Uh, Users of products uh, regardless of of what it is Uh, but in this case you know I think every farmer that's listening would say this is the most safest product I can use on my farm today.
2: Grain producers Australia agricultural chemicals spokesperson Andrew Wiedemann with Warwick Long and in other agricultural chemical news today over the last few weeks you would have heard about the pesticide dimethoate. Now, Australia's chemical regulator, the APVMA, plans to suspend the use of dimethoate as a post-harvest dip for fruits, for things like mangoes and avocados. At one stage, it looked like that ban would start today, but the APVMA says it's currently reviewing submissions received as part of the recent public consultation on the proposed suspension of specific dimethoate products. So the suspension of the chemicals' use won't start today. You'll have to watch this space. We'll keep you posted on those developments and when that does start. This is the Country Hour. It's 28 to 1 and Tabarak El-Jarood in the studio with the news headlines. Hi, Belinda. In the headlines,
10: a woman who's been charged over an alleged hit-and-run incident in Willerton has appeared in court. 12-year-old Alexis Lloyd suffered a broken leg and collarbone after she was struck by a vehicle at a pedestrian crossing on June the 27th. 49-year-old Tahira Shaheen faced Armadale Magistrates Court this morning, where her lawyer successfully sought a six-week adjournment. There are calls for more Qantas ex- executives to leave the company as Alan Joyce brings his departure as CEO two months forward. Vanessa Hudson will assume the role from tomorrow, Qantas has faced weeks of criticism over its mishandling of COVID flight credits and allegation it sold tickets for thousands of cancelled flights. And Australia's eSafety Commissioner says online gaming and social media companies need to do more to protect children from sexual predators. Analysis by the Commissioner's office has found predators are using online platforms to groom children, convincing them to perform sexually explicit acts via inbuilt cameras on smart devices. Commissioner Julie Inman-Grant says more needs to be done to stop this harmful and
2: abusive content spreading. More news at one. Tabarak, thank you so much for that update. 27 to one.
4: Country Hour with Belinda Varischetti on ABC Local Radio WA.
2: And between now and the news at one, it is uh, back off to Mewshade today for the results of the sheep market. And speaking of sheep, with all the uncertainty about the the live sheep trade, um, very shortly we're going to find out if farmers are still prepared to spend a lot of money on decent rams. So a bit of a mixed bag of opinions. We'll get into that shortly here on the Country Hour. And earlier in the hour, talking about the efforts that the Federal Agriculture Minister, Murray Watt, is making to try and get back to business as usual with the cattle trade to Indonesia. Indonesia has some concerns about lumpy skin disease, a few detections, positive detections of lumpy skin disease in the cattle coming from Australia, but only being detected, that positive result turning up in Indonesia and Australia stressing that Australia is still free of LSD and those um, positive results coming somewhere in the journey or on arrival in Indonesia. In response to that, Nick says, why won't Murray Watt work as hard to revive WA's live sheep trade as he is with the live cattle trade? And this from Truckee Robbo. Well, if Indonesia wants to play silly buggers with the countries that is disease-free, fine. Let's find another buyer. Next time they require military or humanitarian aid, we might be busy that week. You can be part of the conversation too on text 0448 922 604. Right now, heading off to the Bureau of Meteorology to catch up with Joey Rawson. Joey, let's take a look around the Southwest Land Division. Is that series of fronts, is that over or there's still more to come?
4: Yeah. Hi, Belinda. There's another front to come tonight. It's not too far away from the southwest of the state. So we've had some prefrontal showers move over the southwest land division ahead of that front. So that's going to move um, across the southwest tonight into tomorrow morning. So um, you could expect a couple of falls out of that to push inland, expecting only a about a mil or two to get to you know, places like Southern Cross and Dal Olinu, but further into the Great Southern, uh, expect a little bit more out of that. So Kentanian uh, may get you know, three to six millimetres, and Narogen and, and Collie getting a little bit more, and obviously a little bit more on the far southwest uh, coast. Um, that front will move through um, tomorrow. And then on Thursday, a really big high moves over the southwest land division, uh, which means uh, we're going to have some pretty good, uh, well, quite cool conditions for Thursday morning. So we could be getting into that frost type of cool conditions uh, with those temperatures around zero. And then on Friday, things warm up a little bit. We have a west coast trough form. So uh, the temperatures uh, certainly warming up near the west coast getting to around 30 uh, on that midwest coast and around 25s through the central wheat belt area. So certainly uh, warming up a little bit. And then we have the last of the fronts for a while on Saturday and it's a little bit interesting, Bill. It's most likely not going to produce a lot of rainfall through the inland parts, but there are some models going for a little bit more. So you know, for the betting man, it's not going to be overly great but we're you know just monitoring whether um, some other solutions come into play so at this stage I only expect a couple of meals but we're not ruling out getting a little bit more if um, some of the other models we're looking at are right so um yeah, a front tonight, and then another front on uh, Saturday, Belinda.
2: And that one on Saturday, where do you expect that rain to fall? Is it a bit hard to tell at this stage, or you, uh, you?
10: The rain
4: is you know, a, the most likely scenario is uh, it's a typical uh, sort of weak front, so most of the rain will fall over the far southwest, and as it pushes inland, it, it, it'll lose that uh, potential to drop rain. So, uh, getting a little bit more in the Great Southern, and uh, and getting up to the. Midwest and central wheat belt is only only a slight chance. So, um, yeah, certainly the focus will be over the far southwest of the state, Belinda.
2: Mm-hmm. And then clear skies across northern and eastern parts?
4: Yeah, exactly. Apart from uh, a bit of smoke, there's a fair few fires going on up in the Kimberley. So... Uh, and there's just a little bit of, like, um, just a bit of cloud over the northern parts of Kimberley. But uh, apart from that, no rain expected for the northern and eastern parts for many, many days. And then the warnings this afternoon. Uh, so we've just got a raft of strong wind warnings. So we've got one for the Ningaloo Coast and then for all the southwest coast from Lanceland all the way around to uh, Bremer Bay for strong winds.
2: Thank you so much for that, Joe. appreciate that. Richard Hudson in the studio now to take a look at the rainfall figures over the last 24 hours to 9 o'clock this morning.
6: Yeah, nothing at all for the northern and eastern forecast districts and nowhere near as much in the southwest land division forecast districts as yesterday. In the central west, New Norcia topped it, topped it with 4 to 11 mils and nowhere else got more than 2 mils. In the lower west, uh, Araluan 6, Bickley 7, Bindoon 7 as well um, Bung, Bungandore had six, Dwelling Up six as well. Gingin West five, Glen Eagle seven, Jandicott seven, Carragulla North seven, Lake Chittering eight, Minston Park seven, Mulyabinny nine, Pinjara five, Rolystone six, Whiteman Park five, Woodridge Estate also had five. In the southwest, Mount William five, Pemberton had 48 mills, but that was over four days. In the southern coastal region, Selena Downs had 10, but that was over two days. So for the last 24 hours, the most was actually three mils. And then in the central wheat belt, again, three mils was the most. And in the Great Southern, the same. Three mils was the most. So people are getting drops here and there, but nothing too substantial.
2: Thanks for that, Richard. 20 to 1 here on the Country Hour. Off to Musha just before the news at 1. We'll get the yarding and the prices at the sheep market today. And given all the uncertainty around the live Sheep trade and a little bit of uncertainty in the cattle trade to Indonesia, too. But honing in on the sheep trade at the moment, curious to find out if sheep farmers are still spending money on rams. And the answer is that some are and some might not be. But it would be safe to say some ram breeders are nervous about what the future holds. Nathan Teakle breeds and sells rams in the Northamptonshire. He thinks it's just a matter of time before farmers in that northern grain-growing region will start to turn their back
1: on sheep. I don't think the impact has been felt yet. I think it's going to be a a trickle-down effect over a number of years. Nothing's been set in concrete yet, so it it hasn't actually been banned yet. But it it is in the minds of wool growers and there could be something coming down the line. Whether it's going to impact on our sales this year, I'm, I'm not sure, but... As I said, it'll be in the back of the minds of producers uh, of, and making the decisions going forward about what they do with their sheep numbers.
11: Are you worried that it will?
1: Uh, yeah, I think where we are in the in the northern sheep growing area, our numbers have been doodling for a lot of years, not because of live export, for a lot of other reasons. And I think we've been been waiting for a hit to come eventually and this, this year may be the year it's going to happen, um, maybe next year if things go through. But yeah, there's... Just the reducing numbers of animals in our in our areas, resulting in uh, probably lack uh, lack of ram sales.
11: If live export were phased out, what sort of impact would it have on wool production?
1: It's all, as I said, it's just all a trickle down effect. One decision creates uh, a rolling impact right through the industry. So I think a lot of people will probably think about getting and go out of wool. It's going to it's going to once you start getting less sheep, you got less you need less shearers, and then there's less employment through the community and it doesn't just impact the wool grower and what he produces as a fibre. It's 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 going to trickle down and have a massive impact right through the community. I think. We went to this the, the live export debate and that sort of stuff. They were there to try and smooth things over, saying how we how can we make getting rid of live export easier for for you. It sounded like they'd already made up their mind what, that they were going to um, end live export. Uh, and their solution was, I oh, will just. Build, make more abattoirs, and we'll build more uh, killing facilities in w a or wherever, but the season's fluctuating and and everything's cyclical with floods and droughts and it all affect sheep numbers some of the years have good producing years for lambs, some aren't, and that impacts on on the abattoir they they can't variate for their um, seasonal fluctuations anywhere across the state. You can hardly get anyone to pour a beer let alone let alone kill a sheep at the moment so it's just not just easy to say, we, Are we're going to install more abattoirs and it's just going to solve the problem because it's, it probably won't.
2: Nathan Tickle, he's a stud principal of the Dyer stud in the Northamptonshire, and he's preparing to sell rams next mutton day at the Northampton Breeders Sale along with other vendors, Mulga Springs and Lindale. 17 to 1 here on The Country Hour. Anthony Thomas is also preparing for an annual on-farm ram sale at Three Springs, about 300 kilometres north of Perth. He's a bit more optimistic about the future because he says history shows farming is cyclical.
12: I feel all right, actually. We've been through this before. It happens from time to time. Farmers are very good at lowering the price, you know. They find something really good, they all pile into it. When it drops, they all pile out of it. So the guys that stay level all the time, just do the average thing and stay where you are, always come out of it good.
11: Are you concerned that people are going to go out of sheep and, and spend less money on genetics?
12: No, I'm not concerned about that at all, really. The thing that farmers have got to do is uh, keep up with their genetics. You know, The whole of the stud industry aims at improving their stock every year And it's always a two-year decision. The decision you make today is two years down the track before you make something out of it. So, really, the thing to do is buy the new genetics and keep up, keep your stock up to scratch. Otherwise, uh, two years time, you'll scratch your head and say, when things are good again, you'll be saying, "God, why? I should have done that two years ago, shouldn't I?"
11: With that in mind, you're going to put up more rams than ever in this coming sale. How many?
12: Yeah, we're going to go from 120 to 152 or three. Yeah, we just feel that uh, we're going to keep the price good for the average farmer. He doesn't need to pay our $4,000 for rams, but there's our people that breed their own stock. They like to do that. So we've got both.
11: So, Anthony, you look at all of the ways to make money out of the animal. Is that, is that the focus rather than over maximising uh, you know, fine wool production? Is that the idea?
12: They're a multi-purpose sheep, where fertility is our number one. If you've got 3,000 ewes, for instance, and they have 3,500 lambs, well, you'd have to sell 3,500 sheep to keep the same number. That emphasises the the meat, so we make a lot of money out of meat, and then wool, we think, is the third for making money. It, it's a necessary evil. We shear twice a year, but um, it's, uh, it's a good good thing. It, sheep do produce enough wool to uh, make the uh, payment to the shearers. Of course we don't have the crutch. But ASPVs are, are a thing that farmers should look at. It's pretty, it's pretty hard for us guys now to look at a ram and think if it's all right. We do have to look at its numbers. And uh, yielding clean fleece weight and uh, eye muscle and fat are the things we chase and growth. So
2: it's working really good for us. Anthony Thomas of Hill Padua Poles at Three Springs speaking to Lucinda Joyce. Well let's find out what prices were like at last Friday's Esperance Ram sale, where there were less vendors but more rams for sale. Five vendors sold three hundred and forty four rams and auctioneer Neil Brindley says most fetch decent prices with only a few passed in. Neil thinks those who are still in the sheep industry in the state's southeast are in it for the long haul.
8: We weren't quite sure just how many we we're going to clear either, but uh, given the um, circumstances surrounding the sheep industry, but uh, I think those that are left in the sheep industry are very committed themselves too.
13: You talk about those circumstances of course, we're talking meat prices which aren't all that flash, wool prices which aren't all that flash and uncertainty as of um, I suppose a number of situations which may occur with the re-election of the current federal government. All of that being said, it does seem like those who are here today and buying are still quite optimistic.
0: Oh, I think. And I've, they've been through tough times before, too, and, and seen the bottom and uh, see what
8: happens when, when we get over the bottom that the prices go to the top. So uh, if you're not in the industry, you're not going to enjoy the, the good prices. So the best thing is to stay in the industry.
13: Next year, do you think the momentum can, can hold, given there is still that uncertainty?
8: Oh, I think it will, yeah, because,
2: I mean, the, the ones that are left in livestock are very, very dedicated and they're, uh, they're going to stay in it, yeah. That is nutrient Auctioneer Neil Brindley with Tara Delangraft, Bruce Pingilly and David Vandenberg sold rams at that sale on Friday and both came away optimistic about the future.
0: Well the vibe from the field day last week was fantastic, we've had the most people come through probably for 10 years so there was no negativity in the shed and I think it's carried on to this week.
14: You know we would have uh, averaged I don't know somewhere to that 1050 to $1,100 which I'm, I'm pretty happy with. It, it might be more, it might be less, I'm not sure but the prices have been quite inconsistent like one ram will sell for three and then the next one will go for $800. It was just very specific on, on figures really.
13: How does that compare to years past, that, that sort of average as you say, it was very up and down but...
14: Generally like, uh, like the front of your catalogue despite the quality would sell very well and then it would taper off, whereas we didn't really taper off, it was, it was up and down right through the sale. So it, I think it was just a good opportunity for people to actually purchase what they wanted.
13: And Bruce it's a very full shed here today.
14: It's the fullest I've ever seen it.
0: They put extensions on five or six years ago, and it's filled up even again from that. So it's the most Rams Esperance has ever seen.
13: There's not as many vendors this year, but it it seems that everybody's been able to put a few extra Rams in.
0: Well, you always got plenty to put in. There's always a few spare ones at home.
13: (laughs) So are you pleased with with how many you were able to get in the sale today?
0: Yeah, very pleased. We put in 40 last year, and, and... passed in probably 10 was this year we've solved it all so for the state that the industry is in um, yeah very positive.
13: Dave let's talk about that state of the industry because I think there is a lot of uncertainty a little bit of nervousness as well and we are already seeing some people in the Esperance region going I don't like this I'm going to get out of sheep altogether I mean what what are you hearing because you're I suppose selling to these people who you're hoping to stay in the industry.
14: There has been a couple that go out but I mean I think that they're also for their own reasons, um, not necessarily the what, what you know the, the government or, or media are saying. So there's also people that are expanding their operation, spreading their risk in their cropping, you know, like taking out a bit of a risky cropping country and expanding their, their livestock. So it's um twos and fro's I think, you know, it's hard to hard to pick it, but those that are in it are certainly in it.
13: Bruce, for you, for you where are you sort of seeing things go? I mean is this this current period we're in at the moment is it something that you just have to ride out or is it a sign of you know bigger things to come the i suppose the groundswell that we're hearing will it come
0: oh i'm sure it will I, um, i'm old enough to remember the 80s and the wool stockpile and it's still nothing like that um, but the best bit at the moment is the youngsters coming through the industry with asbv's the technology they're full on with that and that's the exciting part for us
13: i suppose what we're hearing where people are saying ram prices are just going to absolutely go through the floor because of this uncertainty it's, it's a bit unfounded?
0: I think so there's a there's a bottom there by all means but if you're spending 10% of your willing income on rams yes it's going to go down but it's, it's a, still a percentage you know it's not the end of the world we'll come back from it I'm sure. Bruce
13: given there is uncertainty around if there'll be a, a live trade coming out of of Australia in the years to come if the current federal government is is re-elected i mean does that sit in the back of your mind and maybe having to make some changes away from from that i suppose who are your customers who are buying for that purpose
0: well not really because animals that we breed we can get rid of most of our lamb by 14 months of age at the moment we've got lamb at 50 kilos at five months so it's an early maturing we've changed the style of animal Um, we haven't actually sold a live export for over 10 years it's it's generally gone locally but I can see it affecting those heavy shipping weathers. They're going to affect the mutton market, and that's going to how it's affect us. But um, we've been breeding along those lines for a few years now. Our clients are starting to get used to it. And it's the same with the shearing lot. We don't have a problem with the shearers coming. We've stopped mulesing, and that still doesn't seem to be a problem. So it's breeding the animal for the environment, for the for the conditions that we've got.
13: Now, the Esperance sale is one of the first on the, the calendar, from across the state really, what are you expecting to see and, and hear from fellow studs outside of the region? I mean do you think that they'll have similar success to what you guys have had here today?
14: Um, look I think probably the Esperance uh, region had their big hiccup maybe four or five years ago and I think possibly the, some of the Great Southern and Wheat belt are just having that correction now with, with people going out of livestock so I think maybe some of the wheat belt studs might, mightn't might be as positive. But, look, you never know. If the sheep are right, people still need them. And, and each year there's less and less studs. So, you know, I, I think demand will still be reasonable, just offer maybe a little bit.
2: Bruce Pringilli from Penrose Stud and David Vandenberg from Wattledale Merinos catching up with Tara DeLandgraft after last Friday's Esperance ram sale. Seven to one. This is The Country Hour with
4: Belinda Varischetti on ABC Local Radio WA.
2: And heading off to check prices at the Mouchet Sheep Market shortly. First, though, farmers are warning mango lovers to prepare for an undersupply of the tropical fruit this Christmas. The state's season is struggling due to an unseasonable warm winter
15: in North Queensland. Lucy Cooper
2: has the story.
15: At a North Queensland mango farm, The season isn't shaping up the way everyone had
7: hoped. At the moment, I'd say it's not great. The weather's definitely had an impact on us this year.
15: David Lawrence is the farm manager for two of Mambaloo Mango's farms. Mambaloo is Australia's largest Kensington Pride grower, with two farms in the NT, three in the Atherton Tablelands, and two in the Burdekin region of North Queensland. Speaking at Horseshoe Lagoon, one of Mambaloo's Burdekin-based farms, which has 18,000 mango trees, David said it was August when he realised it was going to be a difficult season.
7: First week of August, we're usually pretty cold, but we sort of didn't really get the temperatures that we wanted.
15: Mangoes need cold winter nights to grow fruit throughout spring and summer.
7: So you need colder temperatures to induce buds and bud break, which then forms flowers. Consecutive weeks of cold temperatures. Anything below, I'd say, 12 degrees is perfect consecutively for weeks or up to a month would really help. We've had a couple below 12s, only a handful, but not really consecutively. Most of them have been the coldest we've sort of been, it's been around that 16 degrees as minimums, so it's not optimal. It's been above normal temperatures for winter, hence the flowering of the mangoes. It sort of slowed it down and made it a lot later than usual.
15: So David says it's been colder than average because of poor mango flowering. But has it actually been a warmer winter? Here's senior climatologist for the Bureau of Meteorology, Greg Browning, to explain.
16: It has been a warm winter. So temperatures, uh, maximums and minimums, have been around a degree above the, uh, the long-term average. Uh, so it has been a particularly warm winter Um hasn't been especially dry. There's been some good rain in some areas around Northern Queensland, but certainly right across Queensland, we've seen above temperatures for maximums and minimums this winter. Uh, Certainly the forecast is showing quite a strong signal for above average temperatures continuing. And we do expect that continue right throughout spring, basically. And uh, uh, rainfall will be probably closer to average, uh, nothing exceptional there, but certainly ongoing warm conditions and, yeah, likely to continue into to summer. So uh, certainly they're going to get those warm days for the, the fruit, um, but, um, yeah, the, there won't be too many cool nights sort of
7: going forward as we get into the warmer time of the year. Slow flowering essentially
15: results in low
7: yields. We're probably sitting at about 30% of our usual yield, but um, I'd expect that to increase significantly over the next two to three weeks.
15: That significant increase David is referring to is because the temperature will now increase with spring upon us, but it won't be a saving grace.
7: We'll have still the best quality mangoes, and there just won't be as, quite as many this year.
15: David Lawrence,
2: farm manager for Australia's largest Kensington Pride mango grower, Man Blue Mangoes, ending that story from Lucy Cooper. Three minutes to one here on the Country Hour. And it was a significantly smaller yarding of sheep and lambs at the sale Salyards this morning. Numbers down about 3,600 on last week. The final tally was 5,387 and 1,764 of those were lambs. Terry Birkin, can you run through the details?
17: Hi, Melinda. It was a lighter sale today with a significant reduction in old season lambs. And as new season lambs are appearing, some lines of merinos are selling as mixed dentition, zero to two tooth sheep. 860 new season lambs were penned again, with most in store condition and several pens at trade weights, while mutton supplies have increased. Values on very light store lambs remain subdued, while bigger frame store and processor weights settled at improved rates, gaining $8 to $10 a head. However, the mutton market declined notably, dropping up to $15 a head with bony ewes being exceptionally hard to sell. The cheaper rates are mainly due to chill rooms that export abattoirs nearing full capacity. New season store lambs started at $5 up to $35, while light lambs made $40 to $59, and trade weights realised $85 to $128 a head. Old season store lambs sold to $32, while light lambs returned 30 to $70, and heavy lambs reaching $108 a head. Mixed entrenchion lines sold from $25 to $60, while crossbred indoor hoggets also made it to $60 a head. Mutton eased with boner ewes starting at $2 up to $15. Medium ewes were selling to $40, and heavy ewes making $48 a head. Weathers were selling at mutton rates, with one pen of heavy weathers reaching $60, and slaughter rams returned $10 to $28 a head. This has been Terry Birkin for MLA's National Livestock Reporting Service at Murchie.
2: Terry, thank you so much for going through those details. About a minute away from the news at one, and a bushfire emergency warning is in place for the Shire of Halls Creek. It's for those in the Milba community and Banjo's Boar to the northeast of Halls Creek. And if you're worried about what's going on, just tune into ABC local radio in that region. If you're listening from another region, go to the ABC Listen app and choose ABC Kimberley. So the fire is at an emergency level. People in the area are in danger and need to act immediately to survive. There is a threat to lives and also to homes. The alert level for this fire has been upgraded as fire conditions have escalated and the fire started near Duncan Road in in Halls Creek. Great to catch up with you today on the ABC right across Western Australia. The news, the one o'clock news is next.
4: You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.